Thank you, Sister Pat. Thank you for the beautiful music through our ordinance of the Lord's Supper and that offertory special. Thank you all, church family. Thank you for your flexibility and uh, your willingness to allow us to try um, things differently. And uh, Thank you for being here today and thank you for your love for the Word of God. It is the... Um, central focus of who we are as a people of God. And uh, when we gather as a body of believers, we give attention to the authoritative teaching, preaching of the Word of God, believing that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine and for reproof and for correction and instructions and righteousness, that the man and woman of God may be thoroughly prepared unto every Good work. This morning I ask that you turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts where we have launched into a series of messages as we look at the history of the early church. Get back to our roots, if you will. And I challenge you, as I have challenged myself personally, as we look at these familiar passages, I'm sure all of us have read through the book of Acts, studied the book of Acts, but as we look more intently at these sections of the book of Acts given to us by the gospel writer Luke in such meticulous detail, I encourage you, as you see the, the paradigm or the model of the church put before us, then I would encourage you to ask yourself, how do I fit against that model? Given the lives and the witnesses and the practices of those early Christians, including the apostles, how am I living my life as a believer of Jesus Christ? And then as a congregation, I would challenge us to look at the blueprint and to make sure that what we are doing fits with what God initially began in the early church 2,000 years ago. If you want to know how to do it right, go back to their origins, and there you'll find it. So this morning we're going to be looking at chapter 4. We've already looked at uh, the first three chapters, and I'll be making some reference back to that. The focus of the message this morning is going to center on the concept of authority. You know, as I think about the dilemma, the controversy of sin, you can trace it back to this matter of authority. Going all the way back into the Garden of Eden, the beginning of time, with the first man and woman, when, when they were sucked into this dilemma in which they were tempted to challenge the authority of God. That's exactly what Satan was causing them to do in that very first temptation, was to question the authority of of God, And so this controversy over authority has raged, though it's taken different forms down through the centuries, it has raged on and on. It's been a matter of, of God's authority versus the devil's authority. God's authority versus man's authority. God's authority versus organized religion, as we'll see in our text today. God's authority versus uh, the authority of science today. Or, or God's authority versus the secular humanistic philosophy that has permeated our society. God's authority is constantly being challenged. And so as we, as we see the events unfolding in chapter 4, you'll understand that it focuses upon the authority, the authority of Jesus Christ. And so first of all, we see as we look back into chapter 3 and think about what set the stage for chapter 4, that the authority of Christ was demonstrated and proclaimed by his early church, particularly, namely, the apostle Peter 
and John, as you remember in chapter 3, when they were on their way to the temple at the hour of prayer, and they were going up there to, to join the others in praying, and certainly to witness for the cause of the resurrected Christ, and they encountered a, a lame man, a man 40 years old, who had been lame from the time that he was born. A man that was begging for alms. And you recall there in chapter 3, if I can take you back there to verse 6 briefly, when, when he was asking them for alms, Peter said in verse uh, 6, he uh, said, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I have, what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising. And you'll look further, further in verse 16 as the, as the multitude had gathered around the, the porch of Solomon in the temple complex. And they see this man that they know has been lame from the time he was born. And a great miracle has happened because not only is he standing, not only is he walking, but he's leaping and he's shouting joyful praises to the Lord. And Peter sees the amazement in the faces of the people in verse 16. He says, and his name, talking about Christ, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. you got to understand the relationship between a name and the authority. Speaking specifically of Jesus Christ. Because when someone claims the name of Jesus, as did the Apostle Peter there... He's not claiming just any name. He's claiming the name of the Son of God. And he's, he's saying that uh, everything that you hear me say is as if Christ were saying it himself. Everything that you see us do as if, as if Christ is doing it himself by virtue of his own character, by virtue of his power, by virtue of his authority. And that's exactly what Peter was doing. He was demonstrating the very authority of Christ. Christ resurrected from the grave and ascended to the right hand of God the Father and he was demonstrating to the multitudes around using this man as an object lesson, if you will. And I don't think the man minded it one bit. He received a, 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 a perfect healing through it. But, but what Peter was doing was demonstrating to the people the authority of Christ to heal. This, the, the authority of Christ to heal. Now that wasn't anything new to Peter and the other apostles. If I can get you to hold your place there, let me take you back into the Gospel of Luke. I want you to see where Jesus exercised this authority right before the very eyes of his apostles. On a regular basis, they saw the Son of God demonstrating this authority. And here in chapter 9 of Luke's Gospel, if you go over to Luke chapter 9 verse 1, not only did Jesus demonstrate this authority before his disciples... But he also delegated this authority to his disciples. And this is what it says in Luke's gospel, chapter 9, verse 1. Then he called his 12 disciples together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And if you go down to verse 6, so they departed and went through the towns preaching the gospel and healing 
everywhere. Jesus had already imparted to his disciples the very authority that was his. Might I remind you in Matthew 28 in verse 18, Jesus said to his disciples, all, all, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. So the possessor of all authority was delegating his authority to his apostles. So it wasn't a strange phenomena to Peter and John that they could exercise this great healing power because they understood that the authority and the power with which they were pronouncing healing wasn't their own. And they were clear to say that. Peter's pointed that out to the multitude. He said, it's not me. It's not me. It's not John. It's the authority and the power of the very Christ that you helped to crucify, that you participated in, in, in crucifying and who was buried but yet was resurrected on the third day. So the apostle Peter was acting on behalf of his master. You know, years ago, not too many years ago, many of us, or maybe some of us, I don't know if everybody did, but you saw a lot of people wearing these cute little rubber bracelets that had inscribed WWJD. What would Jesus do? And it was very thought-provoking, and I'm sure it had good intents and all of that. But, but could I say this? You can't know what Jesus would do unless Jesus resides in you by His Holy Spirit. If you don't have the Spirit of Christ living in you, then it stands to reason you're not going to know the mind of Christ. Only the people of God can understand what Christ would do. And I assure you, and I assert right here, that Peter understood what Jesus would do. It wasn't Peter acting when that lame man asked him for alms. It wasn't the apostle Peter. It wasn't because he was such a benevolent and generous and a gracious guy. It was Christ in him. Did not the apostle Paul say in Galatians 2.20, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live now in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul knew that. Paul understood to be a true believer, to be a spirit-filled believer, is to have Christ living in you. And when you have Christ living in you, guess what? You have the mind of Christ. He will take over your thoughts. He will take over your ideas. He will insert things into your agenda that he wants to do. And when it calls for special power, ladies and gentlemen, he'll supply it. It's not up to us. And that's what Peter was wanting to demonstrate, or rather, what Christ was wanting to demonstrate to the multitudes through the Apostle Peter and using this lame man. That this Jesus, that many had relegated to a simple, you know, criminal's death on a cross and, and, and everybody thought maybe his life and, and his ministry was wasted. And Peter is saying, oh no, oh no, he's, he's not in the grave. He's been resurrected. He has all authority. And here we can demonstrate it. And so he demonstrated that Jesus' authority was the authority to heal, which brings us to the main point. And that is that if Jesus possesses the divine power to heal a lame man who had never walked in his whole life, then this is the same Jesus that has the authority to save. Amen? That's what I was telling you in Matthew 28, 18, when Jesus said, all authority is given unto me. What did he say next to his, his disciples? He imparted to them his authority to do what? To go make disciples. You don't become a disciple of Jesus Christ until you're born again. 
So we were saying, go and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teach them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. You see, it's the name of Christ. The name of Christ represents the very authority of Christ. The Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 10, verse 13, Whosoever calleth upon the name of Christ shall be saved. See, the, the authority of Christ demonstrated in, in healing a man was also demonstrated in salvation. The miracle of the lame man was a symbol. It was an object lesson to help you and I to understand, to help the people of that time to understand that the same Jesus that was able to bring this divine healing is the same Jesus who is able to save lost sinners from their sins. And the church then and the church now, we need to demonstrate that authority. We need to proclaim that authority. You understand that the Bible tells you and me as believers in Christ, as the church, that we are His ambassadors. I don't know how many of you have been watching the winter games over in Sochi, Russia. The, um, about to wind down, I believe, tonight. But, you know, I think about those, those athletes that we send over there. The, the cream of the crop, the best of the best. And, and, you know, these are primed, wonderful athletes. But, you know, each, every one of them, whether they're figure skating or luge or long-distance skiing or the biathlon or whatever they do, listen, they are, in essence, ambassadors of our nation. They represent us, not, not in the political and the authoritative capacity of, of our official ambassador to Russia but they are ambassadors of sort because they represent. People look at them and they think about us. The way they behave, the way they act, the way they win, the way they lose. Listen, it's a demonstration to the rest of the world. People think about Americans when they see our athletes. But even more so, for you and me as believers in Jesus Christ, when we go out into the world, we are ambassadors. We can speak to people about the power of Christ. When I go over to the hospital, whether the, the, the visit with our church members, or when I go in my capacity as a volunteer chaplain and, and I get called in in tragic situations and crisis situations, listen, when I tell people that the Lord is able to heal, I'm not saying I can heal them, but I tell them I can pray for you to the God if you believe in Him and you trust in Him. He has the power to heal. The doctors may give up. The doctors may be mesmerized or puzzled or whatever and don't know. But God has the authority to heal. We can tell people that God has the authority, that Christ has the authority to heal broken relationships, fractured families, ruined careers. Listen, whatever the problems may be, our Lord has authority to heal and to restore. Amen? And I'm so grateful for that. And we ought to be a people of hope in the midst of a world that is living in hopelessness. And we ought to be ambassadors not only to, to the authority for our Lord to heal, but we're ambassadors to the fact that He is able to save. That's one of the most glorious experiences that can happen in the life of a believer is when you encounter a lost person, a person who is living in the darkness of sin and they're unsaved and they're, they're, they're fumbling through life and you can shine the light of the gospel. Listen, when you take that man or woman or that young person by the hand and you share the gospel with them and you tell them, if you will put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, 
If you will yield to the convicting power of His Holy Spirit, repent of your sins and profess faith in the Son of God and ask Him to forgive you of your sins and ask Him to save you, listen, I can tell you with authority, you will be saved. It's not that we do the saving, but it's because He does the saving and we are His ambassadors. So as we move further now, as we look at this, this go back to chapter 4. In the book of Acts. Now as they spoke to the people. The priest. The captain of the temple. And the Sadducees came upon them. Being greatly disturbed. That they taught the people. And preached in Jesus. The resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them. And put them in custody. Until the next day. For it was already evening. However many of those. Who heard the word believed. And the number of the men. Came to about 5,000. We saw in chapter 2. After Peter's Pentecost message. There were 3,000. Added to the number of the church. And now this number is growing. This is not another 5,000. It's simply that the number of believers. Has increased from 3,000. To 5,000. Not a small number. That's a, that's a wonderful problem to have. And in verse 5. And it came to pass on the, same, on the next day. That their rulers, elders and scribes. As well as Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, uh, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? You see, that was very important to the Jewish leaders of that time. It's because, you see, no one stood up in the temple complex and made claims without having some type of delegation or, or authority given to them by the Sanhedrin. And here were these upstart preachers, John and Peter, and this new following called Christians or the way, and they were proclaiming a, a radically different message centered upon a man who was resurrected from the dead. Now, you'll understand, and notice in verse 1, that behind this and spearheading this, this movement against the message of the gospel were the Sadducees. And you may wonder, well, why would this be such a deal to the Sadducees? Because, you see, the Sadducees didn't believe in resurrection. They didn't believe in life after death. They didn't believe in eternal rewards or punishment. And so this cuts right against the grain of who they are as one of the major uh, sects making up Judaism of that day. So naturally, this got their attention. Naturally, they wanted to know by what power, what authority. Now we go to verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's important. Because what Peter says, just like what Peter did, is dependent upon the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in him. So what Peter is saying is what the Holy Spirit is telling him to say. When he says, they're rulers of the people and elders of Israel. If we this day are judged for a good deed done to the helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you, to you all, and to all the people of Israel. That by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, speaking of Christ, this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone, and Peter's quoting right out of Psalm 118, verse 22. This is the stone, speaking of Christ, which was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. So Peter is preaching the authority of Christ. He's proclaiming the authority of Christ. 
And it's interesting, he's, he's mingling into his proclamation the fact that this is the same Jesus that the Sadducees along with the Pharisees and the other Jewish leaders were responsible in crucifying. So we see now Jesus' authority being rejected beginning in verse 13 as we read on. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. And they realized that they had been with Jesus. That was important. They, these men are not your average Galileans. They're not your average run-of-the-mill, untrained, uneducated Jews. These men are speaking with authority. They're speaking with the, uh, power. They're speaking with wisdom. And, and obviously, they've been around this Jesus. How do they know that? Because the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the scribes, they had been around Jesus. They challenged him. They tried to trip him up. And they found they were no match for the authority and the power and the wisdom of the Son of God. So they were making this summation that they'd been with, they marveled at the fact they'd been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go outside of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them, it is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem. And we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name. And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. Now, stop there for a second. Because you see, it's interesting. Up to this point, the church has really enjoyed a favorable attitude by the populace in general. If you were to go back into chapter 2 and, uh, and look there in verse 46, you'll see where it says, this is after Peter's Pentecost message. This is after the great outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the church was speaking in various tongues representing the international contingency in Jerusalem that day. In verse 46, after the, the thousands, 3,000 had been added to the numbers and they were, uh, it says in verse 46 of chapter 2, so continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness, talking about the early Christians, the early church, and simplicity of heart. Now look at verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So you see, in the early goings, the church had no resistance. Everybody liked this, this group of new believers and they were so joyful and they were so kind and they were so benevolent and they were so uh, peaceable and oh, everybody was favorable. But then when Peter came out preaching on the authority of the resurrected Christ, then that's where the fire, or the fat hits the fire, as the old expression is. This is where the persecution begins. Because all of a sudden, the authority of man, the authority of organized religion, is being challenged by the authority of Christ. And here's where you see the rejection. But it shouldn't, it didn't surprise the apostles. This didn't catch them off guard. They didn't wring their hands that all of a sudden there's resistance to the authority of Christ or that they were rejecting the message because in John's gospel in chapter 15, you may recall these words where Jesus was talking to his disciples before his crucifixion in John 15 verse 18. He says, if the world hates you, 
You know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And Christians, I might add, that same message applies to you and me. We're not of the world. If you think that simply being a Christian, you're going to win the favor of the world and everybody out there in the secular world and and everybody caught up in immorality is going to like you, you got another thought coming. Because the minute that you and I stand on the teachings of the Word of God, the minute that you and I choose to allow the Spirit of God to lead us in our convictions and the things that we stand for and we represent, you can believe that you'll sense the same kind of rejection that the apostles were experiencing at this time. So the Jewish authorities now, here's Peter, he's preaching that they are confronted with the authority of the very Jesus that they had helped to crucify. And that this same Jesus, Peter went on to say, this same Jesus that you helped to crucify, he says God is in verse 10. In verse 10 he says, this same Jesus, by the way, it was not just Jesus, it was Jesus the Christ. Oh, oh, and by the way, he was not just Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. He's that Jesus from Nazarene. You remember the attitude the people had toward the town of Nazareth. Can anything good come out of that area? Oh, this, by the way, is the same Jesus. He's from Nazareth, but he's the Messiah. And he's the one you crucified. Oh yeah, he's the one that you thought you had put in the tomb and were done with and once and for all. And he says, but this same Jesus is the same Jesus Christ That God the Father has raised up and resurrected. Now, whose side are you on? You understand the dilemma that the religious leaders found themselves in with the powerful preaching of Peter? Suddenly, they realized, logic told them, wait a minute, if God so favored this Jesus, and if he's the Son of God and God has raised him up as has been testified to by so many witnesses, and we're over here trying to to squash the, the preaching of Jesus... Wait a minute. We we find ourselves being suddenly enemies of God, diametrically opposed to the agenda of God. That would be quite a dilemma. And the evidence of Jesus' authority. Consider what the Sadducees and the and the Sanhedrin. And I thought it was interesting. As you look at the roster of people that had filed in there to to uh, to to. To confront the disciples, you see the, the high priest is there, Caiaphas and Annas and, and the rest of the Sanhedrin. Pardon me, but I believe this is the same murderous crowd that, that conducted the kangaroo hearing for our Lord. This is the same murderous mob and, and, and sinister gang that it came, came up with trumped up false charges against the Son of God. And, and, and they're standing before Peter and John now. I don't know about you, but I think my knees would be knocking about that time to realize these fellows have the authority and the power to do the same thing to us. But the difference was that Peter and John understood that they were standing on the authority of Christ. So the evidence of Jesus' authority is overwhelming. They had all the witnesses Hundreds of witnesses who had seen Christ resurrected. Not only that, they had also experienced Pentecost. They heard 
the, the, the early church disciples speaking in tongues that they all recognized. They saw the power of, of God come down upon this, this group of believers. They saw the power demonstrated in Peter as he preached there at Pentecost. They saw the boldness and the wisdom of these apostles. Oh, listen, there was no denying that. And then to add icing on the cake, if you will, here's this crippled man. In the scripture, Luke is very careful with details. We want to make sure that everybody understood that this, this was not a young boy. This was not a teenager that had suffered some farm accident and became lame. No, this was a man who had existed on the face of the earth for 40 years. If there was a doctor to bring healing, you better believe somebody would have brought him to the doctor. If there was medicine that could have possibly given him back his ability to walk, somebody would have connected him. Forty years is a long time. It's like my age. Take away a couple decades. But anyway, a long time. And yet, he was totally healed. Nobody could deny it. Listen to what the, 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 the leaders themselves said there in verse 16. What, what shall we do to these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. And yet, not being able to deny the obvious authority of Christ, they still chose to reject it. It seems so hard for us to comprehend. How can things be so apparent, and you still choose to reject it? Go back to verse 11. It says, in this Peter's quoting from Psalm 118, This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Peter says, basically, all you're doing is fulfilling Scripture. The writer of the Psalms knew that when God would send His Messiah, that the very ones who should be the builders of the nation of Israel would be the very ones who would reject the stone that God would say, Wait a minute! And take his Christ out of the heap in the rubble where he was cast by the religious leaders and he would dust him off, empower him. And he says, he will be the cornerstone. The very kingdom of God will be built on him. How is it possible? Well, John gives us a glimpse in John John chapter 1 verse 11 when it says, he, speaking of Christ, came to his own and his own would not receive him. How tragic, how ironic of all the people on the face of the earth. The Son of God was born in the very midst of the Jews, the descendants of Abraham. Here was the promised Messiah that so many had looked so forward to for, for generations, for centuries. He was here and it says, and he came to his own and they did not receive him. How is that possible ladies and gentlemen I'll tell you how it's possible by the same way that people around you and me today family members friends neighbors co-workers schoolmates when you and I share our hearts with them and share the gospel with them and we teach them or try to teach them from the word of God we point them right to the plain black and white teachings of the scriptures this is God's love this is God's grace this is God's mercy this is God's savior all you have to do is believe and yet just like the Pharisees the Sadducees and all of the religious leaders people will reject it you and I can't comprehend that But here's the difference. Paul made it clear in 1 Corinthians in chapter 2 verse 14 when he said the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God. 
for their foolishness to him. You go and talk to a secular-minded, humanistic person who's caught up in the world and living by the flesh. Listen, and you talk to them about about sin, you talk to them about grace, you talk to them about mercy, you talk to them about heaven, you talk to them about hell, you might as well be speaking in Slavic Swahili or something. Because they can't understand it. They don't comprehend it. They won't comprehend it until the Spirit of God opens their hearts and their minds. And that's what was happening. The, the, the religious leaders saw with their own eyes. They knew that something different was happening here. Some power, some authority. And yet, even with Peter's proclamation and explanation, they still rejected it. How tragic. People are still rejecting Jesus Christ today. If you're out there doing what you and I need to be doing and talking to people about Jesus Christ, you'll find this in a hurry. You go knock on people's doors and you can talk about a lot of different things. You can sell, you know, things to support your sports team or your cheerleading team. Or you can go and talk to people about United Way. And most people be you know, gracious to at least listen to you at the door. But the minute you mention the name of Jesus Christ, let me say to, this, say to you, you watch the demeanor of so many people. You can see the coldness come over their face. You can see the steely glare in their eyes. And you're trying to give them a gift of eternal life. You're trying to be a vessel by which they can come to experience the wonderful gift of eternal life and they will slam the door in your face. Why? Because they are spiritually blind. They reject the authority of Jesus Christ. What's really tragic is to see the authority of our Savior being rejected from the pulpits of some churches in our nation today. What's really tragic is to see the authority of the Word of God being rebuffed by people calling themselves Christians. He came to His own, and they did not receive Him. Well, we need to move along. Finally, in contrast, we see the authority of Christ after it's been rejected by the Jewish leaders. We see the authority of Christ reaffirmed. And this represents a crucial point in the, in the early life of the church. This was a pivotal turning point. Let me remind you again, Peter and John are standing before the most powerful religious force in their part of the world. They're standing before human authority that has already demonstrated its power to have people executed. They're standing before some of the most sinister, wicked, bent, twisted minds in Judaism. Don't you know? Peter and John were human beings. They were just like you and me. And when the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, the high priest said, listen, you listen to us well. We're going to let you go, but you had better not dare teach or preach in this man's name anymore. I wonder how many Christians would have said, oh, okay, yeah, shoo. yeah, you're going to let us go? We can go free? Yeah, hey, hey, look, Caiaphas, you won't, you won't see my face anymore. We'll quieten things down. We'll just get all the, in a nice little commune and keep it to ourselves. Don't you worry about us. 
But you remember a little earlier? It said, Peter, filled with the Spirit of God. Let me tell you something. When the Spirit of God fills you, you don't back down to anyone. I love what Peter... This is in my prayer log. This is one of my memory verses. I love it because this is the testimony. This was the turning point of the church. No wonder Jesus says to Peter when he made that great declaration when he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, oh, Simon, Barjona, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, bro. This came directly to you from heaven upon this kind of rock-solid proclamation of faith in this Christ, the Son of God. I'll build my church. You go, Peter, you go. Well, I'm paraphrasing a little bit. But what I'm trying to get you to see is the connection between that affirmation by Christ and what Peter says next in verse 19 of chapter 4. And Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God you judge. That right there should have put the leaders under conviction. In essence, they're saying, we'll leave it up to you, Sanhedrin. Should we listen to God or should we listen to you? And then he went on to say, We cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Who's muzzling your witness? Who's putting so much pressure on you that you get tongue-tied when it comes time to tell people about Jesus Christ and what He has meant to you and done for you? Who is it that you're intimidated by that you can't talk plainly about the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and the power of the blood of Jesus to save? Or do you say boldly, filled by the Spirit as Peter did, listen, you judge for yourselves whether I'm right or wrong. That's up to you. But I'll tell you this, I can't help. I can't help speaking of what I've seen. Listen, these fellows had seen Jesus they had seen him work the miracles. They heard him preach the, the powerful messages of the kingdom of God. They saw him crucified on that cross. They saw his body laid in that tomb. They saw him resurrected on Easter Sunday morning. They watched him. Listen, they couldn't help but talk about it. And so in doing so, they were standing on the authority. They were affirming the authority of God. You know, I think about when Moses... And we've been watching the Bible movie put out by the History Channel, the Cornerstone Companions on Wednesday morning, and we saw the segment on Moses and the Exodus. And you know, Mo was quite a quite a guy. I have to give him a lot of credit, you know. Talk about a, a life that was filled with variety. But you know, there was a time when God said to Moses, who was a fugitive on the backside of the wilderness, he said, Look, I got a plan. I want to deliver my people. And Moses said, Yeah. It's about time. Yeah, you are real. Go for it. But then God says, but I'm going to use you. <laughs> you. You're going to go back to the very one that would like to kill you. And you're going to tell him, God said, let my people go. But in Exodus chapter 4, verse 12, when Moses was stammering and stuttering and saying, but yeah, but yeah, but yeah, but yeah, I, I, I can't speak well, but yeah, you know, what, what, what am I going to say? I love what God told him. He says, go now, therefore. Go, 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 go. And I will be with your mouth. And I will teach you what you will say. 
Anytime that you're intimidated to share the truth of the gospel, anytime that somebody's trying to muzzle your witness, you just say a prayer in your heart and say, God, I want to claim Exodus 4.12. You be with my mouth, Lord. You garden. You tell me what to say. Let God do the talking. He wants to. And so that was what was happening right here. Jesus had told his disciples, and we, we, don't want, we won't go back, back there in turn, but in Luke's gospel, chapter 21, in verses 12 through 15, Jesus had told his disciples, don't worry about when you're brought up before the courts. Don't worry about when they arrest you and they bring you up before kings and authorities and religious leaders. He said, don't worry. Don't be anxious. I'll give you the words. I'll tell you what to say. So when you hear Peter saying, judge for yourselves whether it's right in God's eyes or yours, but we cannot help but speaking. That wasn't, that wasn't Petrus. That wasn't Peter. That was the spirit of the, of, of the living Christ putting every word in his mouth. And guess what, ladies and gentlemen? The Lord will do that for you and me. He will do that for you and me if we will affirm the, the authority of Christ. Despite the threats of the enemies, the apostles stayed strong in the tradition of a Daniel. When threatened not to pray to anybody but the, 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 the king. And Daniel, he, he defied that order and went ahead and prayed. Got thrown in the lion's den. Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Hey, listen, when they were threatened by the king, you got to bow down and you got to worship my golden idol. If you don't, you're going into the fiery furnace. What do they do? They refuse. End up in the fiery furnace. Christ was with them, delivered them. But I'm just saying, in the tradition of Daniel and Shadrach and, and, and Meshach and Abednego and, and the, all those that, that would take a stand and certainly in the tradition of Jesus Christ, when Jesus could have saved his life, he could have capitulated and, and said to Pilate, yeah, yeah, you know what? Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm wrong. I'll get out of here and I'll, I'll change everything. I'll change my story. Jesus didn't back down, nor should we. And the apostles affirmed this authority. They reaffirmed this authority. As we look further in chapter 4, we're bringing it to an end here. Not only do we see the authority of Christ reaffirmed by the apostles, but we see the authority of Christ reaffirmed by the church. Look at verse 23. And being let go, they went to their own companions. This is probably the other apostles. The other people that were believers. Not all 5,000. I don't think you could have got them all together. But they all went back to, to their companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God. Who is, who's raising their voice? The church. The church. They're having one more prayer meeting. And I want you to look what they're saying in verse 24. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, Why do the nations rage and the people plot vain things? And the kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His Christ. See, this is all fulfilling prophecy. In verse 27, For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together. Verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. 
by stretching out your hand to heal and, and, and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus Christ. They didn't plot. Hey, listen, Peter and John just barely got away. Let's, let's, let's pack up everything and flee. Let's go to the wilderness. Let's get away from this bunch. They didn't devise a plan whereby they could tone down the message and be more palatable to the religious authorities of their day. No, they simply looked towards heaven. It reminds me of Second Chronicles 20 when King Jehoshaphat and Judah faced a, a, a whole myriad of enemy troops. They were totally, terribly outnumbered. And I love it. The king, the king called a prayer meeting. You need to go back in, the, in Second uh, Chronicles chapter 20 and read, I think, one of the most powerful prayers uttered by a, a, a political uh, a leader. My goodness, how I wished our president had that kind of faith. That he would gather the whole nation around him and look towards heaven and say, Oh, you are the God, the one God, the true God, the God who's created the heavens, the God who has called us up out of bondage. You're the God who's delivered us. And oh God, no matter what comes against us, our eyes are upon you. And that's what the church was saying. As they reaffirmed the authority of Christ, they were praying to God and acknowledging His greatness and His sovereignty and His power, His authority. And they didn't say, now Lord, please take away the threat. Please tone down the Sanhedrin. Please give us the upper hand. No. They were said, oh God, give us boldness. Give us the words to say. Let us be true. And let me tell you something. All, they, all of this they prayed in the name of their Savior, His Holy Servant, Jesus. And that's what the church needs to do. We're facing some pretty intimidating adversaries out there, ladies and gentlemen. And I wish I could tell you that just hang in there. In a few years, things will get better. Just stick to the Word and continue to be faithful and, and, and honor the truth of the Gospel and things will get better. The world will begin to like us and we'll be back in favor like we enjoyed back in the 1940s and 50s in this nation when the church had favor in the society. We're living in a totally different society now, ladies and gentlemen. We're living in a society that is dictated by secular humanism, that has infiltrated the government, that has infiltrated the judicial system, that has infiltrated the educational system, and you and I are fast becoming the minority. And there is persecution. You think what the church went through back 2,000 years ago was bad? Ladies and gentlemen, you read the rest of the book and see what lies ahead. But praise God, we don't have to cower. We don't have to be intimidated. We need to do the exact same thing that the early apostles did and that early church did when they began to fill the scorching fires of persecution. They didn't wring their hands. They didn't run for the hills. They turned their eyes towards God and claimed the authority of Christ to stand on the truth, knowing that He will deliver His people. And if we affirm that authority... God will respond. He responded back then. You love this verse. I do too. How many times have you thought, man, I wish our prayer meeting could be like this. Because you see, the authority of Christ was not only affirmed by the apostles, not only was it affirmed by the church, but more importantly, it was affirmed by the Holy Spirit. Look with me at verse 31 as we close. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled and together was shaken. 
And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. What does that mean? God heard the kind of praying that He yearns for from the hearts of His people. He saw the stage unfold. He saw the persecution that had just erupted there at the temple complex. He understood the the natural fear that might be generated in the hearts of His people. But He heard a people of faith affirming the authority of the risen Jesus Christ and the power of God. And that was music to His ears. Oh, listen, when God began to shake that place, he was just affirming them, you, hey, listen, this is just a sample of my power. You have my power. And God answered their prayer because the last words there is they began to speak the word of God with boldness. I know sometimes people say, you know, I'd like to see God shake and empower the church like that today. Oh, I would too. But more so, I would pray that God would stir up in the hearts of Christians today that same humble spirit of faith and trust in the absolute authority of God to go on out there into the world and to do the work that God has called us to do. That's what God is waiting to hear from His people. The authority. You and I, as a people of God, we have the delegated authority of the Lord Jesus Christ to teach, to preach, to witness, to share from the Word of God, the authority of God on the lives of those who so desperately need to hear. I pray that every one of us will have an opportunity soon to talk to somebody that's lost, who's walking in the darkness of sin, and I hope you'll remember the authority that Peter and John stood on. And I hope that as you look at that lost individual with compassion in your heart, you'll be able to say to them without flinching, Jesus Christ can save you of all your sin. I know He can because He's done it in my life and He will do it in yours if you will simply accept Him.